0: Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and CNPS is working to support the communities of plants and related beings that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Lorreen Edwards Forkner is a gardener who writes, a writer who gardens. Known as Gardener Cook Online, Lorreen is also a mother, a cook, and an artist in and out of the garden. She joins us today to share more about her artistic garden-based daily practice of the last four years, which has resulted in the new book, Color In and Out of the Garden. Watercolor Practices for Painters, Gardeners, and Nature Lovers. Loreen joins me today from her home and garden in West Seattle, Washington. Loreen, I am so pleased to welcome you back to the program today. Thank you for joining
1: me. Jennifer, it's delightful. I'm so excited.
0: I have just introduced you in one way, but I would love for you to share with listeners at this point in your life, Lorene, if there was an organizing principle for your relationship with plants and gardens right now, what is that organizing or motivating principle?
1: I love this question. So first, because the garden is the lens through which I view everything, the whole world. So this is actually, you know, my kind of mission statement for life, which is look closely with great heart.
0: Look closely with great heart. Hardly could you find a better um, mandate or mission to wake up to every single day. And again, I will take you back a little bit before we get into your current work and the current expression of this mission statement. Take us back to your earliest influences. When when you think about the people and the places and plants that grew you into a woman for whom your garden life would be the lens through which you view all of your days, and this would be your motivating principle who were these people in places and plants? How did they grow you, Lorene?
1: It's I always laugh because not many children of my generation held Yule Gibbons up to be their hero, <laughs> but I was just fascinated. By the man. I always checked out his foraging books from the library and, and just the notion that you could go out into the natural world and gather things that would sustain you. So I was always the crafty kid. I also checked out all the craft books. So making and gathering, I can't remember a time that I wasn't doing both of those things. Um, later in uh, college, I studied art and I was going to be an artist And my heart broke just a little bit because my life at that time just wasn't going to accommodate grad school and the formal, at that time, you know, gallery representation and studio work. And, you know, I could do the starving part. I just couldn't do the rest of it. So I really kind of shut myself down to be an artist. I was in fact told that I couldn't be an artist if I didn't do that. And so I ended up in the garden because I always had a plot. I was always digging and planting. And it was there in the garden that I realized I finally kind of came home to that artist in me that I could I could paint seasonal pictures. I could choreograph events. I could play with, you know, sculpting an environment. Um, And so while I very much still have trouble calling myself an artist because I give way too much power to professors. In fact, that has been my medium for the last 40 some years
0: you went on from um school and studying art into the garden into family life uh one of my favorite quotes is that your children drove you to garden and uh <laughs> and there you found your sanity and your your artistry take us a little bit on your
1: professional path in in the garden world it was such a gift um that yes my children did drive me to horticulture and uh but i was just watering plants at my neighborhood nursery. I just like get me out of the house so I can talk to grownups. But when I was there, all of a sudden I met my people. I met the sciencey geeks who knew all the horticulture and Latin and, and could make fun of me about how I said, why Julia or didn't people to whom they would, you know, fawn over a seedling or a petal or something. It was, it was honestly Everything, sadly, everything that the arts community, in my experience, was not. Um, So as one does, I went from watering the plants at the nursery to becoming manager of the nursery. And then um, inexplicably thinking I was qualified to actually open a nursery of my own. Um, which I did in 1995. And Jennifer, I love it. That's when I met you.
0: I know, all those years ago. And I guess the only requirement, honestly, to run a nursery is either the naivete or the courage or both to actually do it. And you did it. And you had Fremont Gardens from 1995 until? 2007.
1: Um, And I would... Add to naivete and courage, really strong back because it is hard work. There is so much heavy lifting, but but it was delightful because all of those people came into my store and my employees and and everything. I was in that community of people who found the wonder in gardening, and and we all had the same problems: taxes, cash flow, you know, communication, weather. Um, So by 2007, I was kind of chewed up, spit out, ready to move on. And so I closed the nursery uh, brilliantly about um, six months before the entire world's economy fell apart. So uh, the following five years, maybe, were given over to... um, freelance garden writing and and uh, my first book projects. And you know, in the course of having the nursery and having a month or a monthly newsletter and talking to my customers, I started to tell garden stories. And that's when I really found the writer in me. Um, and you know it it I was always a reader, am still a voracious reader. Um, and so language became a way for me to communicate with my customers to to tell and and kind of seduce people into gardening make them forget all the heavy lifting um so i did the writing on my own for about five years and then i think it was in 2012 like at the end of 2011 beginning of 2012 um I became the editor of Pacific Horticulture Magazine, um, a nonprofit horticulture organization based in California, but really covering all of the West Coast. Um, And it was a quarterly magazine. The platform was strictly for gardeners to tell their garden stories. And um, everything in, in those pages was donated by people who wanted to share their stories. And so for the next however many years it is until 2019, I became, rather than telling my garden stories, I was helping people tell their garden stories. I want to go
0: to having you pick up the threads of this idea of color and what it means to you and, and how it has played out across those different expressions of you as a writer, gardener, artist, um, cook even. And then maybe lead us to this place where you are are looking for something and that something turns out to be a daily practice.
1: I would say the thread... That connects all the way back um, to every to again the way I look at the world is color. Um, that was always my focus when I was taking art classes. Um, the gardens I put together, I start with color and then <laughs> try and match conditions and all the rest. Um, color, color is a very powerful factor in our world and i um i always wait for someone to raise their hand and say but i'm colorblind but um my understanding of colorblindness is you simply see color differently so <clears throat> but in fact color in the natural world is designed or or engineered by the great one to capture the attention of all living creatures so we are very much living creatures. So just like foraging bears, looking for those berries or birds picking off all your blueberries. Um color, color gets our attention. And so I think, you know, I happen to absolutely delight in it. Um, but I think everybody has that same, we're all under that spell. We all, you know, color is working on us whether we recognize it or not And
0: this is one of the things I find so fascinating uh, about your your book and the way it brings in the physics of color as well as the emotion as well as the um, the psychology of it again whether we know it or not and the idea of color and the study of color is ancient as we know take us to the moment where this, not only becomes a sort of, you know, thread through what you're doing, but it becomes a primary focus.
1: So I I should say, I always, I have always aspired to have a daily practice. I thought that would be very, very cool. Um, I brush my teeth every day, uh, but that's about it. Our family motto is we never do anything twice. So this was very much outside of you know we don't have a lot of traditions we don't have that you know calendar of celebrations other than you know birthdays and and so it was it was unusual that i wanted daily practice. That was a departure for me. Um, But back in, I think it was about 2016, I discovered a project, an online community called The 100 Day Project, which starts in the springtime. And for 100 days, people commit to doing something creative and posting it online. I thought, well, I can dip my toe in a daily practice. So I did it the first year in 2016, and I called it my Roy G. Biv world because color just seemed like such a a light lift for me. So on um, every seven days, each day in a seven day cycle, I would post photographs of the colors of the rainbow. So red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. So, and that was delightful. I loved how that played out in my feed. There's just something about the rainbow spectrum that chimes even more with my love of color and I completed 100 days and that was, that was fun. Um, And then I went on to do nothing two days in a row for the following year. Um, I did another episode or another, you know, round in the following year, uh, which I put too many strictures on it. It it wasn't color-based. It was more writing based and it felt like work. Um, So the third year, 2018, it's like no, I'm going to go back. I'm, you know, that's that's that meant something to me, and it fed something to my life to have something to do every day. Um, at the time, yeah, this was like spring of 2018. I had just been through a very grueling 18 month illness uh, with my father, who had died um, just two weeks before the project was supposed to start. And, um, I was so, so lucky that my parents live in this area and I could be a part of a daily, you know, I could walk him with him all the way to the end. Um, but it, it was hard. It was really, really, really hard. So I said, uh, you know, I have to do something completely. If I'm going to do a 100 day project, it has to be completely iterative. It has to tell me what to do rather than me initiate any sort of a thing. Um, so I decided looking outside my window and there's always a garden there. And because I live in the Pacific Northwest, there's always something going on in the garden. Um, and I, I decided that I would pick a tiny piece of my garden, a plant, a stick, a leaf, and I would put it on a little tiny four by four inch piece of paper. And I would attempt to match the colors that I would get out my craft store, watercolor paints, um, and, and just mix color and do that. And I would post it. And, that, and I would, you know, the I would say something about it to kind of own the experience. You know, this is what I'm looking at. This is, this is, this blooms in April. So my first posting on that first one, on that 100 day project was April 3rd, uh, 2018. And I posted a photograph of a viburnum bodnantense dawn, which blooms in my garden from November till April. Um, so it was during that very, final days of dad's life. And I said, this is what I'm going to do for hundred days. And it's going to be interesting to watch my healing from the, you know, kind of the broken and grief place that I started in so freshly after his death to what it would look like 100 days later. So that kind of the word part of it was me owning, um, watching that play play that this
0: is cultivating place this week just in time for mother's day we're speaking with lorene edwards forkner a gardener a cook a mother lorene is also an artist we'll be right back after a break when we hear more about the inspiration behind her daily garden specimen color swatch practice stay with us Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the California Native Plant Society on a mission to support California's native plants and places using both head and heart. In October of 2022, CNPS is hosting their biannual Native Plant Conference, this year with a theme of Rooting Together, restoring connections to plants, place, and people. CNPS is inviting everyone including you, to be part of the conversation and the effort to celebrate, protect, and restore California's plants and everything and everyone connected to them. CNPS has a current call out for presentation applications. If how we restore connections and root together is dear to your heart and you would like to find out more about presenting at the conference, please visit conference.cnps.org. That's conference.cnps.org. The deadline for conference presentation submissions is April 30th. So get yours in now. Hey, it's Jennifer. Look closely with great heart look closely with great heart. Look closely with great heart. I just have nothing to add to that as a gardener or a human. Happy Mother's Day in advance to every soul out there in all of our gender identities, This world needs all of the big-hearted, full-color gardening and mothering we can get. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're speaking this week with Lorene Edwards-Forkner, gardener and author of Color In and Out of the Garden, watercolor practices for painters, gardeners, and nature lovers. As we come back, we learn more about Lorene's inspirations for this daily practice, including the deep grief following the death of her father and the moving local color palettes of Bay Area artist Mimi Robinson.
1: On one of my trips to the Bay Area for work, I now call myself an artist, but that doesn't mean I don't buy art supplies and ramble through every art store I've ever seen. So I was in a marvelous art store in Berkeley and I came across a book uh, called Local Color by the artist, um, Bay Area artist Mimi Robinson. And uh, it was, it was about Obviously, color. Um, Mimi Robinson is a landscape painter and she also works with craftswomen all over the world. She's much more than a landscape painter. Um, but she she was doing these color swatches as a means of identifying place. So the Marin Headlands in springtime has these colors in it. Or there was a blossoming plum branch. I went to this exhibit at uh, the Berkeley Botanic Garden and has an exhibit space in the middle on one of my trips. I wandered through this old garden into this ancient kind of rustic exhibit space where Robinson's work was up. And I saw her depiction of the color swatches with a. it was a photograph of these color swatches with a flowering plum set on top of it. And so these were her colors and, and it just, it like something inside me clicked. Um, so I, I'm so grateful to that experience in like the previous year or so that I, that I could draw on that. It's like that, that I can do. I know color. I have plants, and that I can do.
0: um the resonance and the the riffing off the way we do as gardeners, as artists, as writers that we, you know, I think of the artist and um, ho couture uh, designer Sasha Dewar and her local color work. And I love how, how this is a a beautiful building off of, of those ideas and, and then heading it into this other very garden based direction. Um, and then coupling that with your, your processing and growing through grief. Um, brings a whole nother layer that, uh, really informs what I then take from this book myself, Color In and Out of the Garden. And, and I love Mimi Robinson's work. I, I have met her and have her book Local Color. And, mm. and I always think to myself, next time I travel, I'm going to try this. When you started this 100 day project all of those years ago, and those have been some really long years, Lorene, um, <laughs> You know, I think we all know what I mean when I say that. Uh, Tell us about how that 100-day project then just amplified itself into what is now, uh, you know, will be by the time people hear this, you know, more than four years of a daily
1: practice. I think it, it basically amounted to, you know, when I was doing those 100 days, it wasn't a march to hit 100 days. It was finding or discovering the relief that that gave me. That uh, focusing on color and and shuts out everything else. I mean, people talk about meditation as you know the silencing of all the other voices. Well, I I will never. Well, meditation for me looks like color looks like doing this process um and it became a willful distraction you know a mantra as it were that i could focus on and it would quiet all the other noise um and so at the end of those 100 days, it's like, I can't stop that. I mean, the noise is still out there. The grief is still out there. Life is still throwing curveballs, and, and my garden is still there. So I just, I never stopped. Um, and, and it, And it began to resonate with people. You know, at first it was like, Yay, mom, you're all the way up to 98 days. And uh, and my husband, you know, honestly, when I would get stressed about something like when your daughter is hospitalized and about to give birth to twins, uh, and he's like, well, maybe you should go paint. Maybe that would be a good way to calm your shit down. (laughs) Can't say that. Bleep, bleep, yes. (laughs) but uh so it became a tool in my life. It became uh it became that daily practice. It was just a part of my life. Um and and it is it is certainly a powerful force for me and I began to discover through people responding because I always posted it on Instagram and it sort of just lives there. Um and I don't bother about algorithms and reels and I mean this is a very still process. Um, but I started to get a community around that of people who, for them, they just liked looking at it. And, and that was their moment of color focus and reprieve. And I, you know, in my stories that I included with everyone, sometimes people responded to what was going on in life. Sometimes people responded to, I love blue. Everybody loves blue. Um, And, and it began to be kind of a feedback loop um, and people trying it themselves. And, you know, like, oh, I, you know, I went out in the backyard and I had my craft watercolor set and I did this bachelor button and my son was doing it alongside of me. And it's like, and that just makes me so happy that people are, it's like in my, I mean, I would love people to prescribe this, right? That, you know, doctors in hospitals, well, here's a pair of watercolor sets and here's a cheesy hospital bouquet, knock yourself out. And it's only like 10 minutes. It's, it's not an investment of time. So it's more the accumulation of days that is where your energy is.
0: Okay, I want to get to the process because you have led us there, but first I want to ask you a little bit more about this original longing for a daily practice. And and you you mentioned this idea of you are in a family that didn't do something every day other than brush your teeth or didn't have a seasonal cycle of celebration or, um, marking of, of time, uh, other than birthdays. What do you think is at the heart of what you were hoping a daily practice would bring to you? And I, I think it's, I think it's embedded in the answer you were just working with about, um, about focus and about meditation but is there anything else you want to add about that because i i think for me that is partly what the garden brings to me um mm-hmm. and and do you have any other thoughts on you know why you were longing for it and and what it brought to your life when you found it
1: yeah it it was it was for me it was it was not tending to my kids who are now grown with their families. Um, it wasn't taking care of my parents. It wasn't, um, you know, doing the things that a household needs or even the things that a garden needs on a regular basis. It wasn't tending other people's stories for a for a publication deadline. It was, it was just completely about me. I was the only one keeping myself doing it. Nobody, you know, the world will keep spinning if I miss a day. Um, But it it was just absolutely a personal thing that somehow started to feed me. Now, don't get me wrong. Some days are very tedious. You do something every day there are going to be tedious moments and and absurd moments where it's like, really, you are rearranging your vacation so that you can stop and make, college, you know, it's like, it's there is that level of absurdity. But that's that's life too. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but this is my absurdity.
0: <laughs> okay, but I'm going to push back about that a little bit. Um, not the absurdity, but that it's all about <laughs> you. And, and the reason I want to push back on that is that that puts us in this, it puts us in a place wherein we are viewing this idea of a daily practice and are longing for it and what we find in it as something that is, uh, selfish or, um, or is, okay, so I'm just going to stop right there. And I'm, and I'm going to say that for me, what I get from your practice in this book is that it actually allows you to to transcend your own cares. And it taps into that ritual and universal longing for something greater than ourselves. Like it taps you into the universal. It taps you into where we go when we pray or we meditate. And that is so far beyond like just about us. It is about moving us into this, this bigger space you know, that we, we often talk, I think, in our world about the veils between the worlds. And there is in that focus that we get in a daily practice, like prayer, like reading, like gardening, like this color work practice for you, it actually explodes this idea of an individual self and makes us part of this immense universal divine common
1: that's that's so beautifully put um and i think the framework of a 100 day project or a daily practice was my permission slip mm-hmm. to show up yeah it was my permission slip to make room in my life 10 minutes a day sometimes more sometimes less um and And what that daily practice looks like has changed over the years. it It still remains daily, But it was that permission to make room for it. And then when I showed up, that's when, yes, that's when the self went away. That's when I felt all the joy. That's when I, you know, the veils is perfect. I mean, i I got an email one time from a father who's was talking about how much he appreciated and felt closer to his daughter, hearing me talk about my dad, that that initiated mm. conversations mm. with, um, with his daughter and, and, you know, mothers with young children, mothers with sick young children who would be in the hospital, but looking through my feed about just, you know, it's color, it's joy. It's, and, and all of a sudden the, the big world, which, frankly, can be very, very frightening to me sometimes. Um, became tender and and vulnerable. And and that really was when um it began to kind of crack me open and and changed me in many, many, many ways.
0: Yeah. And, you know, as our good friend Leonard Cohen tells us. It's only when we crack that the light comes in and it's only when the light comes in that we see color, Lorraine, right? Yeah, yep. There's
1: no color without light.
0: Go to your practice. Walk us through what does this practice look like and involve? Uh, this is all in the book, but uh, I'd love you to walk us through it and then we'll get into um, the actual like variety of color and the way you talk about it in the book a little bit as well.
1: So the... I'm, I'm very lucky that, you know, in this old house that we've lived in for so many years um, and the children have vacated the entire upstairs, so I have taken over. Um, so I have a table, an old dining table that I have set up with all my watercolors, which are very humble paints. People are always asking me technical watercolor questions. Um, phthalo blue this and quinacridon that. And, and I like... No, no. I have these very humble watercolors. Um, And I have little four by four inch pieces of watercolor paper. And I have the same craft brush, square headed craft brush that I started using four years ago. And I have a jar of water. And, you know, I, I walk around, I'm always walking around. And one of the things I love is, you know, four years into this, people bring me things to paint. You know, my husband goes out on a walk every day and he'll, oh, I brought you this home to paint. And, <laughs> and I love that because that means they're paying attention, they're seeing right. as well. Um, and that's one less thing I have to think of to paint that day. Um, so I, I just, I only paint by daylight because getting back to... Light is so, you know, and natural light is so important. Um, so my painting windows are very short in the winter time and luxuriously long in the summertime. Um, but I love that, that there's a seasonal aspect, not only in terms of the garden to what I'm rolling out on 365 days a year, but that the world around me is different at di- different times of the year, the natural world. Um, and it's, it's really pretty simple. I just look at a plant and mix the colors to match that. I will hold the plant up next to my little test swatches. It's like, it needs a little more of this or a little more of that or leans that. And I make nine squares typically. Um, and some days works great and some days is very disappointing to me Um, but regardless then I take it over to uh, my desk which is in front of a window and I put the botanical or the shell or the stick or whatever it is on top of the painting and snap a photograph of it Um, and then that's um, that's kind of the the root I guess of then whatever my little storytelling bit is that day and I will say um because people ask me it's like we, you know you're I know you're on an airplane and yet I saw you post a picture and um and I will paint in batches um that's one thing that I have allowed myself there are no rules for this other than the ones I make is I will paint two or three things at a time like today on my calendar it says go paint um I don't really, I can't really sit down and do a big batch of them because I'm concentrating and there's like a visual fatigue and, and, you know, sometimes boredom. Um, And, but the, but the posting every day and the, the little mini essay commentary, you know, short story, what that is the daily part of it. Um, And as a writer, that has been an amazing discipline that I really didn't anticipate it's um, you know the color is it's it's not unconnected but um, I see more both in terms of colors as well as language. This is Cultivating Place. This week, just
0: in time for Mother's Day, we're speaking with Lorreen Edwards-Forkner, a gardener, a cook, a mother. Lorene is also an artist. We'll be right back after a break when we hear more about the specifics of Lorene's daily color and plant adoration practice. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. As we find ourselves at the threshold of a new month, the month of May, in which most areas of the northern hemisphere move past their last hard frost dates, we can see the world green and grow all around us. I want to thank you all for being out there helping Cultivating Place to Grow by listening, by commenting, by sharing episodes that move you with your family, your friends, and other gardeners, by rating and reviewing it on any of the platforms where you might listen. You help this growing podcast to fulfill its mission of growing and encouraging more and more great gardeners, gardeners of place and purpose and heart. Happy almost May. Keep growing, gardeners. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're speaking this week with Lorene Edwards-Forkner, author of color in and out of the garden. Watercolor practices for painters, gardeners, and nature lovers. As we come back, we hear more about the specifics of Lorene's daily color and plant adoration practice from paints to papers to plants and their places. One of the things that's so genius about the 100-day project is that uh, that sort of mandate that you have to put this out there publicly in the world. That's your accountability step. It's like having an exercise partner or your your curriculum in school and your deadline that your professor is asking you to turn something in. This is that way of ensuring that you do what you know you want to do and building the habit that strengthens and um, encourages the habit. The <clears throat> The... Looking, so you say it's so simple. I have tried to do <laughs> your little simple task, Lorene, and and it's actually phenomenally uh, simple and elegant in its simplicity, and it shows you just how complex the things you 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 see and walk by every day actually are. Like to actually take mm-hmm. a clipping of, say. Um, you know, one of my roses that's in bloom right now. And to look closely at the many hues of green or the the white with the pink, with maybe a little bit of browning on an edge or a little bit of, of magenta that you just didn't even notice in the stem before. Like this is the beautiful sort of micro macro explosion that you, you get to when you are looking as closely as you are asking us to look, uh, in the course of sharing your work with us. Your eventual table of contents focuses on the individual colors. Will you walk people through those individual colors and maybe just give us a, a highlight about an insight from each color that you cover for us?
1: Great. Well, um, as your editor will quickly tell you, uh, every book needs a structure. So I was, uh, because I feel like spectrums, you know, if there is a rainbow in the sky, everybody stops and looks up to the sky. Um, with there's just something that's so attractive or human about that. Um, and even when I, you know, was doing the book and you go deep into every single little aspect, you know, well, a, a rainbow is moisture in the sky in the presence of light. But so it draws our attention upward, but in fact, it's also reflecting the curvature of our planet. So it's, it's grounding us, it's lifting us up. So I had this idea, I want to do it in you know I want my chapters as it were to be in the colors of the rainbow red orange yellow green blue indigo violet and when you flip the pages like the old flip books when you were a kid it, you would see that rainbow display itself it, it was <laughs> it didn't do that we didn't do that but um but I still was thinking in terms of you know those Roigibiv colors. And what we arrived at was that there is a different energy to each color. Um, and you know there's lots of information, lots of books, a lot of in, um, work has been done talking about the different energies of each color. Um, so the book is still in the colors of the rainbow, um, but the first chapter, attention, focuses on red and you think about ripe berries. I think, you know, one of the earliest paintings is of um, a strawberry in my backyard and how, um, you know, animals foraging, gluttonous gardeners foraging, you know, it's like red gets our attention. That's why stop signs are red. Um, And then we moved into energy, which is orange. I happen to get a tremendous amount of energy from orange. And in my garden, it is probably the dominant color, which, you know, lots of people don't like orange, but orange is also all the browns and the caramels and the rust and, you know, all of these things that are around us in the natural world. Um, So I have lots of rust in my garden. I collect rusty chains. Um, So next to my orange tulips that are blooming right now I have my rusty chain um the next yellow was memory and of course memory was so much at the heart of um the beginning of this practice you know where i came from what color has meant to me in the past how it's helped me in the f- present and g- moving forward growth green of course um every once in a while you got to pitch a low and slow um, and then blue, the the tenderness and the vulnerability, um, which was kind of, you know, in addition to the energy and the memories and the growth through this process, the the breaking me open, the tenderness and the vulnerability, and honestly, not breaking me in a bad way, but breaking me in a way that the connections can form and that might, you know, the expansiveness. It's like I'm not looking at just my world. I'm looking at, you know, the greater world and Violet, um, because always choose love. And I don't know why. I mean, I I knew I had to land on that. And Violet is the end. So um so once we came up with that structure, that was that was a lovely that was a discipline, but also a framework that I could begin working on the book. So it it went from oh, I want a flip book of colorful pages to, you know, let's explore uh, this narrative. Let's exp-. and it became very personal. Um, my Les uh, Leslie Jonathan is my agent and beautiful human who helped me. Go through all these steps. I make it sound so obvious here, but it was not obvious at the time. Um, and I'm forever grateful that she she just kept saying, "Make it, make it personal."
0: Yeah. And I think that gets to my, my noting earlier in the conversation that this book is very different than your previous books. And, (laughs) and, and certainly several of them had quite a bit of personal history to them. Um, and a lot of emotional background, um, uh, from which they were being written or, or put together. But this one is really about, about you, the human Lorene and, um, that cracking open and, uh, the way the colors helped that to happen, supported that happening. Um, and I, I found that very tender, um, and tapping into this universality of what we as humans are trying to do, why we're here, why we matter, all of those things, which, you know, again, I think both you and I and and many people listening, we find that in the garden in so many ways. Um, when you think back on this process, so I am speaking to you in April, the book is going to publish on April 30th. 26. On April 26th, which happens to be Frederick Law Olmstead's birthday.
1: That I planned it that way.
0: <laughs> of course. <laughs> you started this project four years ago. Have there been surprises or, or insights for you along the way that were new to you even before starting the book process?
1: Absolutely. And primary, you know, I began to to just celebrate color. But when I started making that time, making that window and then I started putting it out there and seeing how it resonated with others. Um you know, I can say now that color is a very sophisticated tool designed to, you know, or engineered to attract the attention of all living creatures, but I didn't start out that way. I started out like, oh, I really like pink. Um and I, I didn't think I liked pink, but look at all the p- different pinks. And, and then people would chime in. It's like, oh, well, I hate pink, but I love orange. And, you know, it's like, well, wait a minute. What is this going on? What is so human and, and powerful about this thing, color? And, and, you know, so often color is kind of like relegated to decoration or a finishing touch. And it's, you know, it's, it's frivolous. It's, it's the flip book of colorful pages going by. But in fact, it, it has the power to move people. It can set a mood, it can ignite, it can calm, it, I mean, it is such a factor in our world, um in the natural world, but also the built human world. And that you know, those were some of the discoveries that came came out to me. And I, I do a lot of reading on color. Um, in addition to my turquoise book, I have a book called Drunk Tank Pink, which is a fabulous analysis of how colors suit. You know, there's a reason why that color is painted on the inside of like jail cells. Um, the drunk tank. Yeah. The drunk tank. Um, and, and so that You know, that's that's a power that goes way beyond, you know, am I an autumn or a spring or, you know, for a wardrobe decision. When
0: you think about this process for you and the the launching of this very personal book out into the world, what are your calls to action for for listeners what are your hopes and goals of how this lands with people who uh buy the book receive the book uh
1: even just see what you're doing online for the first time my my call to action is to pay attention um you don't have to do anything with it but just stop and take in open your eyes i i think people around me will say that they see more than they used to, whether they're doing it or not, just because, you know, at, at the base of all this, these paintings are just kind of like pointing out, hey, look at this, you know, that rose has brown as well as green and magenta and, and you know, it, ha- it has all of that. It's not just a pink rose. Um, and the expansiveness that in- is introduced is necessary. Our human we need to feel expansiveness. And um so I I love the conversations that start with people who don't have anything to do with the art world. Um who don't you know they just you, maybe they connect on the words or I'm I'm talking about the tides and how things come and go and there are natural rhythms and we just ride. I feel like by pointing these things out in the world, you know, hey, look at this, and I'm getting you to look at it because I'm doing a color study, um, that it's connecting with people beyond the garden, beyond, um, you know, my tiny little pond that I'm in. Um, and I, that means the world to me, that by letting myself open up, I'm reaching other people. It is treasure to me that I have people in India who are so keenly aware of color that follow the practice and weigh in. Those human connections have been very, very, very precious. I would love
0: to have you end by reading something from the afterword in the book. A
1: garden makes room for human impulse to organize while also offering us a means to comprehend wildness. Gardening is a humble practice fraught with snails, failure and loss that also holds the promise of transcendent moments of exquisite beauty. It helps us to make sense of nature and find our role in ongoing creation. My garden is a beautiful distraction that taught me how to cultivate a daily practice. Along with joyous highs and days of celebration, these past several years have held plenty of hard, noisy and broken parts. To do something, anything really on a daily basis is to court tedium. Sometimes all I can do is ride out the doldrum and watch for the next lifting wave of wonder and awe and it always arise. My practice is the walk between this day and that. I guess what I'm saying is pay attention to your life, including the uncelebrated, the overlooked and the weedy parts. Look with heart and compassion. Embrace the broken and the beautiful, then share what you see with others. Our world needs your perspective.
0: Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been a real treat to speak with you about this
1: project. Thank you, Jennifer.
0: Lorene Edwards-Forkner is a gardener, a mother, a cook, and an artist in and out of the garden. Her newest book is Color In and Out of the Garden, Watercolor Practices for Painters, Gardeners, and Nature Lovers, available on April 26th from Abrams Press. Join us again next week when we head to Charleston, South Carolina to enjoy the sights, sounds, and full-spectrum community in a small public park known as Theodora Park, the vision of longtime Charleston resident and community builder David Rawl, in honor of his mother, Theodora. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you – and by partner support from the California Native Plant Society. For more information and full color plant and paint images from Color in and Out of the Garden by Lorreen Edwards-Forkner, head on over to cultivatingplace.com and look for this week's show notes under the podcast tab. That's all at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, with tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Mechupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the colorful cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.